take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 will be our text. And I know it's been a number of weeks since we've been in Hebrews. And so just as a way to set the context and bring our minds back to this wonderful um, book, uh, the book of Hebrews was written to suffering Christians, persecuted Christians, And this book was written to encourage them to uh, hang on to Christ. And this encouragement comes by demonstrating how Christ fulfills all that we need. That Christ satisfies every need that we could have. If we are in Christ, then, then we have everything. It's before us. And this is done by comparing and contrasting Christ to those things and people that preceded him in God's revelation. That is, in God's Bible. How Christ is better than angels. How Christ is better than Moses. How Christ is better than Joshua. How Christ is better than Aaron and the high priesthood. Christ is better than the law. Christ is better than the tabernacle and the earthly temple. And in fact, that is the very language of Hebrews that's used over and over again, is that Christ does something better because Christ is better. And all of those things of the past, they were used of God, but they were not the end, but rather they were for the purpose of pointing to something greater, pointing to something that would be perfect, and that is to Christ. And so the text this morning is following what Old Testament worship looked like and why in Christ we have something better. But specifically, the argument goes this morning that in Christ we've received the good things, the promised good things. And what are those promised good things? Well, Christ is the high priest of a new era, a new reformation. Christ is the high priest of an eternal redemption. Christ is a high priest that cleanses the conscience. Christ is the high priest of a new way of life. And it's those four things that are brought out in this text, that Christ is that high priest of a reformation, of eternal redemption, of cleansing the conscience in a new way of life, that we see the good things in Christ have arrived. So let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. Christ is the high priest of the Reformation. You notice beginning in verse 11, it begins with the word but, which is a contrast to what had 
taken place before this or what was stated before this. And specifically, the word but is a a contrast to this one specific phrase in verse 9 of chapter 9. When speaking of how worship took place in the Old Testament, the author comes to this conclusion is this, is that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, in the Old Testament, by following all of the regulations through temple worship, there was still a problem with their conscience. It was still guilty. Even if they had followed all of the works of the ceremonial law, just as God had told them and instructed them to do, there was still a problem with the conscience. You see, this is an important thing to note, is that works and deeds, even if defined and commanded by God, do not perfect our conscience. Following different precepts while we are commanded, and it is morally right to follow God's commands, they don't perfect the conscience. There's still something left unsaid. And this is, this is the problem, is that even through the law of going and following it to the T of what God had instructed in their worship, they were still guilty. Even today, if we were to follow the law as best as we could, we would still have a problem. And for the non-Christian, this is a problem that they cannot ever escape. And why is that? Well, you just have to ask, what are the motivations for doing anything that we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Why is it that we want to obey the law? Is it because of fear of consequences for disobeying law? What are our motivations And so we see that we have a problem with the conscience because we're never able to fully, even as Christians, to do things from the most pure heart. We have been given a a new heart. We desire the law and the new covenant. But until glory, our motivations are still always going to be mixed. You're never going to wake up and say, I'm going to do everything that I do today from a pure heart. Not until glory. And so our motivations are always mixed, and so even when we follow God's law to the T, which we can't do, and which they couldn't do, and that they did not do, even if you could, there's still a problem with our conscience. This is why we see that Christ brings about, and it says in verse 10, a new reformation, and he is the priest of a new reformation, which is to speak of a new era. We have entered into a new time. And it is this, is why have we entered into this new time? Is because Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Let's just break that apart. Christ is speaking of the Messiah. And so the Messiah has come. And, and writing to a Hebrew audience, a Jewish audience, it's to say all that was expected of the one that was promised, he has arrived, he is our high priest, he is the mediator on our behalf, the one that, that, that from the beginning has been testified of, he has appeared. 
And specifically, the promised seed of, of Eve has arrived. He has appeared. He appeared specifically in the flesh, is the reference here. All that was prophesied about, all that was promised, the culminating event is realized when Christ had appeared. You think about this word that he appeared, that is that he came in the flesh, he came and walked as a man. You think of John's testimony of this in 1 John, where he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You think about what John says and what it says in Hebrews, is that he appeared... The one that is promised, John tells us, we saw him, we touched him. So when it says he has appeared, this is that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one has come. He has come in the flesh. And what did he do in the flesh as he came as a high priest? That is, he came for the purpose of mediation. That is, that he came for a purpose to reconcile Two parties that are estranged from one another. And because he is the mediator, because he is the high priest, the text tells us then, because he has appeared, the good things have come. The good things have come. So the coming of Christ initiates the realities of the new covenant. And we have looked at what those realities of the new covenant were. That we would know God, that we would love God's law, that we would be able to follow God. All those that are in the new covenant would know God. That is the good things that are promised. So his priesthood is tied to the promises of the new covenant. Him appearing is is attached to the promises of the new covenant being realized. He is the priest of a new covenant, which means that the old covenant has been nullified. Now we have to think about this for a second. The old covenant, your Old Testament, was conditional. It was based on a conditional law. Over and over again, if you follow these things, this will be the result. It was a conditional covenant. If you do this, this will be the result. God's deliverance of His people, God's keeping them in the land was in many ways on that condition of whether they kept God's law. God's choice of a people in Him choosing a special people for Himself to have His, his special care while many of them would receive faith by faith just as we do. The covenant itself was to set aside a people through which the Savior of the world would come. And we have to view the Old Covenant in those terms because the author of Hebrews even tells us this, is that the first covenant wasn't without fault. Meaning how we should view the Old Covenant is not as being a means of salvation, but actually as a means of bringing the Savior of the world to being. What do I mean by that? God chose a people for Himself through the line of Abraham. And you see through the Old Testament, God's narrowing that line down through the tribe of Judah, through David, and eventually you get to the Messiah. 
And so the Old Covenant was the means of God preserving a people to bring about His Messiah, and that Messiah has appeared. And so what are the good things or the better promises? We see this idea of of an inheritance of promises in chapter 6. and chapter 8, in verse 6, we're told that there is more excellent, there is a better covenant, there are better promises that are coming. So what are the better things? What are the good things? What are the better promises? Well, actually, the New Covenant reorients how we think as we walk through this world right now. And stick with me on this for a second. In the Old Covenant, what were you promised? Land, fruitful womb, an abundance of harvest, good weather, your enemies will flee from you. Those were the promises of the Old Covenant. We're not promised that in the New Covenant so much, are we? Not in the same sense, anyways. You see, the New Covenant actually promises that which is spiritual and is lasting. We will actually inherit a better land, a new heavens and a new earth. We will inherit a blessings of eternal life. And so when we compare and contrast the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, the New Covenant offers that which is eternal, that which is spiritual, I think this is so important for us to think about because the text of Scripture tells us these are the good things. But how often is it in this life that we walk through this life that when we consider the good things, we consider land and wealth and health and how we're treated? Aren't those the things that we are always wanting? And so what happens when we lose those things? How do we deal with setbacks? How do we handle the temporal setbacks of of financial disasters or problems with our health? You see, those are not promises of the new covenant in the same way they were in the old covenant. In the Old Covenant, you would have been promised all of these things by obedience. In the New Covenant, we're told that we will be obedient, but we're not promised that we'll have good health. I'm not promised that I will own a certain amount of land. I'm not promised that I will have an abundance of things. You know, it's a misunderstanding of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is why the, one of the primary reasons why the charismatic movement exists is because they promise you all of these things. They, 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 they're writing a check they can't cash. Let us not fall into that, because let us remember that if we're told the good things are these eternal things that we have received with Christ, it means this, is that we've received the good things that we're going to receive, and they're better than the things that are temporal of this world. Doesn't that give us a different perspective on how we view suffering in this life? Doesn't this change how we view about what our goals and priorities in this life are? You think of Jesus saying, don't store up your treasures on earth. 
The good things have arrived. And if the good things have arrived, and if you are in Christ, that means this, is you have the best thing. You have the best thing, and it's specifically this, is eternal redemption. Christ is the high priest of an eternal redemption. And it's spoken of here as something that Christ has accomplished. It's realized that you have an eternal redemption. It says in verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That word securing means this is something that Christ has accomplished for His own. And how did He do this? Well, it tells us, through the greater and more perfect tent. There's a lot of debate about what this tent is. This is speaking of his body. Speaking of the tent of his body, this was how eternal redemption was accomplished. And how do we know that this is speaking of his body? Well, it's the same reason that we saw this in other places in Scripture where it talked about in chapter 8, verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That is speaking of the body of Christ. Scripture elsewhere speaks of Christ's body as the temple. John chapter 1, verse 14, you're familiar with the text, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled, tented among us. And Jesus speaking of His body. In John chapter 2, verse 21, but He was speaking about the temple of His body. Christ Himself referred to the tent, referred to the temple as being His body. And so that eternal redemption is accomplished through his body. Uh, further, why we should see it as his body is because the text goes on to say that this was done by the blood of Christ. Christ's physical spilt blood. The fact that he entered into something is speaking of what he does. Christ entered into heaven as a man and remains and will always be truly God, truly man. Remember when the disciples were watching Christ ascend. What did the angels say? Why are you looking up there? He will descend as he ascended. That is, as a man. The tent, or the temple, was to be a type of Christ. It was to foreshadow Christ. Specifically, the temple was the presence of God with man. Eden was when God's presence was with mankind. And because Adam was kicked out of the garden... God set up a tabernacle by instructing Moses, and this is how I will dwell with you if you do these things. You read in Ezekiel how the presence of God leaves the temple, and the presence of God doesn't return to the physical temple until Christ walks through it. But what do we see now? Christ walking with mankind by His Spirit. He walks with His people. The tent was the type. The tabernacle, the type, the temple was a type. Christ is the anti-type. Christ has appeared. As Calvin said, Christ alone entered into heaven through the temple of his body. 
So he entered for once for all into the holy places. It says it was not made, this body was not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Well, what does that mean when the text says that? Well, it means what it says. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we read this, And the angel answered her, speaking to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I don't know what that means. Except for later text of Scripture tells us that Jesus was of the seed of Mary. Just as promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the, the one that would crush the head of the serpent would come from the seed of the woman. There's great mystery there. But it says, not made with hands, that is not of creation. The Holy Spirit formed out of Mary... The Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism says this on the question that the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God took to Himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature so that He might become David's true descendant like His brothers in every way except for sin. So the tent is his body that's not made with hands, that's not of this creation, meaning he did not come about by normal generation. And in this tent, it says he entered into the holy places. What is it that he accomplished in this tent? Well, verse 12 tells us this. In this tent, he secured an eternal redemption. What is redemption? Oftentimes it's defined as being purchased back, to be bought bought back from something or someone. And the imagery takes us back to Exodus. God, through Moses, delivered the children of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It was a physical deliverance that he brought about in buying back his children. But the good things have arrived. The good things have come. Christ offers something better. He offers something good. That is an eternal redemption. Notice what this eternal redemption brings us. It brings us into the presence of God. Why is that? Because Christ entered into the holy places once for all. What was lacking in the Old Covenant? The holy places, the presence of God. Only the high priest could go in once a year, and he could not even really experience, because of the incense filling the room, the presence of God. And the incense was filled in there to protect him from losing his own life. But the people themselves didn't get to experience that. But the good things have arrived and we get to experience the holy places in Christ in which we're able to approach His throne of grace. In other words, we have access to the presence of God through Christ, no longer restricted to just a priest and and something that's temporal and only once a year, but is given by Christ eternally, those that walk with Him. And that is because of this eternal redemption that He brings about, which means forgiveness. 
A forgiveness has been accomplished by Christ. A forgiveness of sins, not on the basis of what I or what someone else does for me, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And specifically, this eternal redemption is by means of His own blood, as the text says. That is the work of Christ upon the cross. And notice, it's once for all. He won't do it again, because His sacrifice was sufficient. It's interesting that the high priest would offer someone else's blood, but they wouldn't even offer the blood of a human as a representative, but they would offer the blood of an animal. What is it that Christ offers? Christ offers his own blood. And just hang on that for a second, that Christ offered his own blood. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the redemption through the blood of Christ that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 3 when he connects the blood of Christ to the redemption that we have in Christ. In Romans 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So God's righteousness in Christ, right? Christ's righteousness is offered through faith. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Listen, here it is. Through the redemption that is in in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is satisfying the wrath of God. And upon the cross, Christ satisfies the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve. Christ himself, through his shed blood, takes that upon himself. He takes the wrath as he who was knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Christ buys his people. He accomplished an eternal and secured an eternal redemption. Now, in the Old Covenant, their redemption was was realized. They, They had their escape and their exodus from Egypt, but it was not eternal. It was not lasting. Israel quickly very quickly found themselves surrounded by enemies and were held captive. In fact, it's interesting that the unity that is promised in the new covenant that the church will actually experience, when you study the Old Testament narrative, the idea of unity in Israel was very fragile and lasted for 80 years, the reign of David to Solomon, and then it was destroyed within a matter of days. That redemption that they experienced was momentary. Being protected from their enemies was momentary. It was not long until Israel was held captive, and at the time of Christ, they were under the yoke of captors of Rome. But the good things have arrived. And in the New Testament, Christ as our captain, assures and ensures that we are never in bondage to the enemy, Satan, ever again. Because he has been bound. What Christ brings is an eternal 
redemption. We're not forgiven and then not forgiven. The forgiveness we receive includes past, present, and future sins. In fact, Paul says this of our sins in Colossians 2.14, that we have been forgiving of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when you read that passage, you always have to ask, when was this setting aside taking place? When did it take place? It took place on the cross. Past, present, future sins forgiven in Christ. Only future sins can be forgiven if they were forgiven in the cross. That's why it's an eternal redemption that we are given. And by the way, just this eternal redemption is so important for understanding the book of Hebrews in in the overall theme of it is that Hebrews is telling us that those that are in Christ will never fall away from Christ. Then you have to ask, how do we understand all of those passages in, in Hebrews that say, don't fall away, don't drift away, because those that do will never return. Well, we have to understand it in this. It helps us to understand these warning passages that we are warned not to fall away. But if we are granted an eternal redemption, it makes it impossible for those of true faith to fall away. If the promises of the new covenant are the good things, then we have to know that those who know God as promised in the new covenant cannot all of a sudden just unknow God. Which means it's possible to profess Christ but not possess Christ. That's to whom the warnings are given. Is those that may profess Christ, they may say, Lord, Lord, but never actually know the Lord. Because what Christ brings is not a temporary conditional faith, or conditional redemption, but rather He brings us, those that are in Christ, He brings something that's eternal. To deny an eternal redemption would be to deny the efficacious blood of Christ. It would be to say this, Christ's blood worked, but then it stopped working. It would be to say that Christ did not actually secure something. What Christ brings us is the good things, which is an eternal. But there's something else that should cause us to pause about this and just focus on this for a second, because I think we, I think we just tend to neglect it. How great was the work of Christ? How amazing and awesome was our Savior's work in which He secured an eternal redemption. It's something that we actually cannot comprehend. We cannot comprehend eternity because there's nothing in our human existence that we can point to and say, that's eternity. That's what eternity looks like because we don't know. It's beyond us. It's incomprehensible. But it's something our eternal God gives us in His Son. What's the application of it? It's simply this. It's the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
Sometimes isn't it enough to just look at Scripture and not have to have some practical advice, but say, my Lord, my God, and let us just adore and worship Christ for who He is, that He secures an eternal redemption, and He does it with His spilt blood for you, for me, and we're not worthy. I don't have to be told what practical steps in life I need to live when I hear those words. Because I'm told everything I need to know about life in this world, and that is Jesus is my Lord, my King, my God, who spilt His blood for me. That's all you need to know is He's King. And you're not. And by His grace... You have received, if you are in Christ, an eternal salvation. So, let us adore Christ. Let us thank Christ. Let us live for Christ. Let us worship Christ. Let us proclaim Christ. Let us rest in Christ. Let us trust in Christ. Let us be assured by Christ, our Lord and our God. But have you received that eternal redemption by faith? Do you know this Lord that is King? Because the good things are for those that have called upon the Lord by His grace through faith and have received an eternal redemption. We're told that what the next good thing is from another perspective, and it's given by means of an argument from something lesser to something greater. In verse 13, it says this, for this is the beginning of an argument. The word for is introducing an argument for, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's a long sentence. But it's making the argument, if these things would purify the flesh, verse 14, here's the conclusion of the argument, if they, can, if they work for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify the conscience? That's the argument being made. And so there's a contrast between a sanctification of the flesh or a purification of the flesh versus a purification of the conscience. And so again, we're coming back to this contrasting of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant ceremonial laws did in fact, we're told here according to the Scripture, they purified the flesh. They purified those outward things. Being sprinkled by the blood of animals and the ashes of a heifer brought ceremonial cleansing. It's hard to understand when you really think about the temple and the tabernacle and that inner, the, 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 the inner holy of holies. Especially in Solomon's temple, it was just coated with gold everywhere. And we've talked in the past about the degrees of holiness, and as you go into the holy of holies, it becomes more and more holy, and you think of the beauty that would have been in there. But then also, there was blood sprinkled on everything, constantly. And that's what we're told was what would bring about a purification. The things of the flesh could be purified according to God's law. 
says the ashes of a heifer. Now, speaking of the red heifer that would be slaughtered outside the camp and then the ashes would be set aside in this container and then the, the, those ashes would every now and then be brought out to be mixed with some sort of water to sprinkle and cleansing. But the whole process of burning the heifer, someone that was clean had to burn the heifer and then, then he was unclean after he burned the heifer. Someone else would have to come along that was clean to store it, but then once he stored it, he was now unclean. And so you see this problem of this constant need of a cleansing of the flesh. If you touch a dead body, you're now in need of the ashes of the heifer to be made clean. If you have done this thing, you're now unclean. And over and over again, physically, we're told that they were unclean. The problem is, even when they were clean, they still had an unclean conscience. They still had a guilty conscience. The things outwardly that we do cannot actually change the heart. The things outwardly we do does not make a person a better person. I'm sorry to inform all of the pop psychologists, doing things does not make us a good person. You see, the things I do cannot change the inner desires of my heart. Now, can I be morally disciplined? Yeah, I think you can. Can I be outwardly obedient? Yes. But then go read the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus testifies against your heart. Outward things cannot cleanse the heart. They may cleanse outwardly. So how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience. Now that's really the climactic argument that began in chapter 9. Read it again in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So even following all of the things that God called me to do, there's still a guilty conscience. Let me me ask you, do you have a guilty conscience? How is it alleviated? What do we do with our guilt? The first thing is, is we have to recognize it has either been taken Or, if we don't recognize that, we do things to get rid of a guilty conscience. But what's the problem with us doing things to get rid of a guilty conscience? The guilt remains. Here's the point that we're seeing. There is nothing that we can do in our own ability to shed a guilty conscience. There's no outward thing, external thing that we can do that takes care of the guilt that I have in my conscience for the things that I have done, the things that I know because God has written His law in my heart and I have sinned and transgressed against God. There is nothing I can do to get rid of that guilt. It stays there. It's abiding. 
And it's always with you. That's why that guilt has to be taken. That's why someone from the outside has to do a work that you cannot do on the outside, but an internal work that is done only by God. That is why those that have faith have received an eternal redemption by the means of the blood of Christ. And as a result of that forgiveness, our conscience has been cleansed. I'm no longer held liable for my sins before a holy God because I've received the righteousness of Christ and Christ received my sin on the cross. If our conscience is cleansed by Christ, and think about this, when we do face guilt, because we will face guilt, we will face conviction, why would we look to ourselves to correct it? Why would we look to how we have failed or not failed to alleviate it? Why would we base it on how well we're doing rather than on the complete work of Christ? In other words, when we have our guilty conscience, where we should be looking is not in our performance and how well we do things. We should be looking at what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, if you're thinking for a second, does that mean we don't strive for holiness? Does that mean we don't try to actually live obedient? Well, hold on, because we also see as a final point, is Christ is the high priest of a new way of life. It says this, He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I know some translations translate that a little bit different as a command. I think the ESV is correct here, is that Christ has purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? All works apart from Christ are dead works. And the context is them following the law. Our works are dead. Our works deserve death. They don't accomplish salvation. They do not uh, accomplish a guilt-free conscience. But a clear conscience comes as a result of an eternal redemption. So that means that we don't just sit back and continue as we were and say, well, I'm saved by grace. Christ has cleansed my conscience. I live any way I want. God doesn't expect any change in me. I'm not supposed to strive after anything anymore. That's not what we see. What we actually see is the promise of the new covenant is that we now love God's law. We love to follow it. Why? Because we've been changed. Our life is different. In Christ, as Calvin says, we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt. But in order that our purity may serve the glory of God, we are moved from serving dead works to that of serving God. And this reveals the ultimate goal of our salvation, which is this. Holiness, sanctification, holiness to serve the living God. You were saved to be set apart for God's purposes, to be holy, to be a holy priesthood following after Christ. 
Not only are we commanded that of Christ, He is the one that makes us this way. We are set apart by an entire work of Christ. Our sanctification is a work of Christ. Our glorification is a work of Christ. But in the mysterious working of God, we are called to a holy life. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're called to strive for holiness and a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. This eternal redemption that we receive, it moves us from sinful to those that are serving, those that are worshiping the living God in Christ. Those are the good things that have come. Those are the good things that are promised as a cleansed conscience. An eternal redemption means eternal forgiveness, that we've entered into a new age, a new time, Christ as our Lord, Christ as our captive, who has subdued all our surrounding enemies, in which he will protect us from them and preserve us until he calls us home. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that is available in Him and in Him alone. We thank You, Father, for a cleansed conscience. When we struggle with guilt of of our sinful lives, and we, we all do fall short, Father, we pray that we would look to Christ and be reminded of the truth of the Gospel that we have been cleansed by His blood. Father, may we cling to Christ as He clings to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.